Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. In 2022, a convicted murderer made a startling confession. The prisoner had been incarcerated for killing young women over a two-year period between 2002 and 2004. Levi Belfield claimed he had been responsible for attacking a mother and her daughters in 1996. Michael Stone was found guilty of the murders of Lynn and Megan Russell and the attempted murder of Josie Russell in 1998, but Stone had always claimed he was innocent. Belfield had a reputation for confessing to things or withholding information when it suited him, spending time toying with the police and victims' loved ones seemed like a pastime for a man with nothing but time on his hands. Two young women viciously murdered, battered about the head. Two more horrific attempted murders and an attempted kidnapping. A catalogue of brutal attacks all blamed on one man. From his car, he stalked bus stops and late-night bus routes in West London, waiting for nightfall so the bus's lights would make it easier to identify his victim. He usually targeted young longs. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 1 of They Walk Among Us, 
a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The concluding instalment will be available next week. Marsha Louise MacDonald was heading home after a night out in Kingston, southwest London, when the 19-year-old was attacked just after midnight on February 4th, 2003. She disembarked the number 111 bus, walking from Percy Road to Priory Road, located in Hampton, part of Richmond-upon-Thames. Unbeknownst to the teenager, she had not been alone on this part of the journey. She was being followed. A short time later, after hearing a loud thud outside the front gate, Marsha's neighbours David Fuller and his wife Bernadette went outside to investigate. They were startled by the awful vision of a motionless young woman. Marsha was lying in a pool of blood. She was less than 100 yards from her front door. As first responders rushed to the scene at 12.23am, the glaring lights from the police cars and ambulances lit up the street. Marsha's home was just five miles from where 13-year-old Millie Dowler had vanished less than a year earlier. It was not immediately evident that the two cases were linked. Officers were dispatched to a property only a few doors down to inform Marsha's parents. Speaking with the London Evening Standard, Marsha's mother recalled hearing the doorbell. Usa MacDonald said, I assume she had left her keys again, but it was a policeman. My stomach just went. Marsha was rushed to Kingston Hospital with severe head injuries. She had lost consciousness almost immediately, and despite the best efforts of the medical staff who performed emergency surgery, Marsha was beyond saving. The life support machine was switched off on Wednesday, February 6th. Marsha MacDonald was the second-born child of Phil and Uta MacDonald. They were by their daughter's side with two of their other children, Natalie and Maya, when Marsha passed away. Marsha's heartbroken parents had not yet told their youngest child, Jack. He was just five years old and adored his older sister. Marsha's father, Phil, said at the time, The pain of Marsha's death is simply indescribable, and I know it will never go away until the day I die. Already I'm thinking of the birthdays and Christmases ahead when Marsha won't be with us. It is like having a weight hanging on the bottom of your heart, and it will be there for the rest of your life. Marsha's mother spoke about her daughter, with Uta's comments published in the Times newspaper. She packed so much into those 19 years of hers, and thank God she did but it is terrible to think that her life was ended with such terrible violence. She was also a wonderful violinist and tremendous at netball. She was the rock all her friends depended on, 
and now she has gone. I had four children before, and if anyone asks me in future how many children I have, I will tell them I still have four because, for me, Marsha is always going to be here. We had hoped at least when Marsha died they would have been able to use her organs to help others. She would have wanted that, but they had been too badly affected. Marsha MacDonald had taken a gap year after completing her A-levels in photography, psychology and communications at Richmond-upon-Thames College. She worked in a Kingston candle shop to save money for her dream trip to travel around Australia. Marsha's family and friends adored her. Her mother spoke about how her daughter had survived life-threatening meningitis at the age of four. Uta said, They told me she was so ill that if she lived, she would be deaf and dumb for life, but she went on to be a brilliant violinist. On the evening she was attacked, Marsha had been at the cinema with her friends watching the film Catch Me If You Can. She made the familiar journey home via public transport as she had done many times before, but sadly this trip was different. She would never walk back through her front door. The police were trying to establish what exactly had happened between the time Marsha got off the bus and the time she was attacked. Detective Chief Inspector Christopher Watts of the Metropolitan Police confirmed that none of Marsha's belongings had been stolen and there were no outward signs of a struggle. The officer said, This was an extremely ruthless attack on a defenceless young girl. At this stage, we have absolutely no idea about motive. It could prove to be a random attack, which would be especially worrying. But the key to solving this murder would well lie in her circle of friends. As is routine in any murder investigation, the police began to look into Marsha's personal life. Investigators learned that she had recently split up with her boyfriend. Still, nothing about her relationship indicated that her former partner could have been responsible for the brutal attack. They're delving deep in Priory Road in the search for clues which might help explain a murder which seems beyond explanation. Detectives have been studying CCTV footage from the local area but say they are baffled by the motive for the attack. The drains have so far yielded nothing, nor have the gardens, nor the neighbours' rubbish. Today, police continue to make door-to-door inquiries and are appealing for witnesses. Friends and relatives have been doing what they can to try to comfort the family. The murder has shaken the people of Hampton. It's scary that it's so close to home, actually. I have two young girls at 30 and 27, and I I just would hate to think they were out after dark now. A post-mortem examination was conducted by a pathologist who concluded that Marsha MacDonald had been killed with a blunt instrument. There were three blows to the front, side and back of her head. Detective Chief Inspector Richard Freeman said, It appears that she was attacked from behind and knew nothing about what was going to happen until it was too late. Marsha had not been sexually assaulted. 
and it appeared to be a completely random attack. Metropolitan Police Detective Chief Superintendent David Cook addressed the media. This is a complete mystery. We're completely open-minded. We don't know what the motive is. If we could find the motive, it would take us one step closer to solving the crime. Naturally, people should be concerned in that area. It's a residential area. If they are going to go out at night, then be escorted home or be accompanied home. Um, really, common sense approach is the best sort of advice that I could give at this moment in time. Nightfall and detectives in Hampton still work on, but though they've searched tirelessly all day, they remain baffled as to who carried out this apparently random attack. Police will be out in large numbers tonight, hopping on and off buses along this route, the 111. They'll be trying to contact passengers who may have travelled exactly a week ago on the night Marsha was killed. This is a community in shock, but also fearful. They know the police are mystified by this attack and that whoever killed Marsha remains at large. While the attack on Marsha McDonnell was initially investigated as an isolated incident, Jesse Wilson, a teenager who had been taken to hospital with head injuries in January of that year, came forward to report that she believed she may have also been struck in the head. At the time, Jesse could not remember what had happened to her, and it was put down to an accident, a slip on an icy winter path. Metropolitan Detective Chief Superintendent Cook said, One minute she was walking along, the next she was in hospital with head injuries. We are looking at the nature of the injuries. A medical expert examined the teenager's wounds, including a six-centimetre cut on her head. It was concluded that they were consistent with Marsha McDonald's injuries, which had likely been inflicted with a hammer. Jesse Wilson had spent 10 days in hospital following the incident. A few weeks after Marsha McDonald's death, an 18-year-old reported that a man tried to attack him as he got off a bus at Hampton Hill in the early hours of the morning. The teenager said a man wearing a hood had swung a hammer at him. This report made the police more concerned that they were dealing with a serial offender. At a press conference held in relation to the attacks, Detective Superintendent Alistair Jeffrey said, We are linking these investigations because of the similar facts. They all took place during hours of darkness and all in the same type of location. They were all apparently motiveless, unprovoked attacks probably a planned attack in each case, and in each case, it was a blunt instrument used as a weapon. On the day before Marsha McDonald's funeral, a 22-year-old man was arrested and questioned, following a reconstruction of the murder broadcast on BBC's Crime Watch. The suspect was released without charge, only for another man to be arrested and subsequently released after being seen wielding a hammer in the area close to where Marsha was killed. At Marsha's funeral, more than 500 mourners congregated in St. Francis de Sales Catholic Church in Hampton. 
Marsh's casket decorated with paintings of cherubs was followed into the church by her heartbroken parents and siblings. Marsh's father had been a tour manager for a number of popular music acts, including Clannad, who played music for the ceremony. Father Bernard Boylan told the congregation that Marsha had regularly contributed to a children's charity, a fact unbeknownst to her family. Loved ones asked that mourners donate to the Shooting Star Children's Hospice Charity in Marsha's memory. In late March, the 18-year-old who had reported being attacked by a man with a hammer was arrested on suspicion of making a false allegation and wasting police time. Soon after, an EFIT image was generated by the police when a member of the public told them that she had seen a man leaning over Jesse Wilson after she had supposedly slipped on the pavement. The man was described as white, clean-shaven, around 5 feet 9 inches tall, aged in his forties with collar-length hair, a large build and bushy eyebrows. News followed that a 16-year-old was arrested and sectioned under the Mental Health Act. He was suspected of committing the attacks, but not everyone was certain of his involvement. Despite the intense investigation, there were no significant developments and it appeared that Marsha McDonald's killer was still at large. A year would pass, and on May 28, 2004, another teenager, 18-year-old Kate Sheedy, was making her way home to Iselworth in Hounslow after a night out with her friends. Kate had just finished the sixth form at Gumley House, ending her seven years at the school where she undertook the leadership role of head girl. The group of friends had gone to Twickenham for celebratory drinks and a night of karaoke before Kate boarded the H22 bus back to Wharton Road, which was close to her home. Describing what she saw, Kate Sheedy later said, there was a white people carrier after the junction with Farnell Road, and it had its engine running, but the lights turned off. Initially, I thought it might be a taxi dropping someone off, but it struck me as odd because it had blacked-out windows. I just got a really bad feeling about it, and didn't want to walk past it, so I tried to do the right thing and cross the road but as I crossed the entrance to the industrial estate, the van turned its lights on, you turned and came straight for me. I tried to run, but they hit me and I fell on my front. Then they reversed over me. I was just thinking, why are they doing this? It didn't feel real. It was unbelievable and went in slow motion. I was frozen with the shock of it. When it happened for the second time, I felt completely crushed, but I didn't notice that my back had been ripped open. I just felt crushed. I stood up but fell straight back down again. I thought, I've got to get home. I'm very badly hurt, and started crawling. 
Kate managed to drag herself off the road and pull out her phone to call her mother for help. At first, Eileen Sheedy could not make sense of what her daughter was saying. She looked outside but could not see anything. In the meantime, Kate managed to call 999 and told an operator what had happened. Kate then contacted her mother again and managed to give her directions. Eileen Sheedy ran outside and found her daughter crumpled against a parked car. Eileen later said, I didn't expect to find her in the state she was in, as she was conscious and calm. That was the most shocking thing. It felt like ages waiting for the ambulance to come. I think it was only about ten minutes, but it seemed like forever, and we couldn't understand what was taking it so long. Clearly in shock, Kate Sheedy was conscious throughout the wait for paramedics, a wait that must have seemed like an eternity. She tearfully told her mother that if help did not arrive soon, she was going to die. Kate could not have known how right she was, as her injuries were potentially fatal, and it was remarkable she was still functioning at the level she was. As her father arrived at the scene, so did the ambulance. Kate recalled, They gave me a head and neck brace, and I was vaguely aware that my dad was holding something up to my back. When they put me on my back, that was the first time I felt in absolute agony, and I was begging them to put me back on the pavement. Kate Sheedy was rushed to West Middlesex University Hospital, and then later transferred to King's College Hospital, where an X-ray showed that she had a ruptured liver, a collapsed lung, a punctured lung, fractures to her ribs and collarbone, and a large open wound along her back. She spent two weeks in intensive care, part of that time on a ventilator while her lungs were repaired. Speaking with a reporter from BBC News, Kate's mother Eileen said, We were told we had to be prepared for the fact she might die, but I couldn't let myself think it. It was a very surreal experience because of the whole day leading up to it. It was such a big day, and everyone was so happy. Despite her catastrophic injuries, Kate was discharged from the hospital after a month but her recovery was far more complicated than fixing her physical wounds. Kate told reporter Alison Freeman, That person is still out there. That's always in the back of my mind. I think it was just my misfortune to be there at that time. But I can't comprehend the fact that another human being could do that for no particular reason. Immediately after the hit and run, the police began hunting for the driver of the white people carrier. During that same week in August when Kate Sheedy spoke to the press about her ordeal, another young woman was killed. On August 19th, 2004, 
22-year-old Amelie Delagrange took the bus back toward her home near Twickenham Green. Amelie had moved to London four months earlier and was working at a French coffee shop called Le Maison Blanc in Richmond-upon-Thames. She had loyal friends and was in a relationship with Oliver Lafont, who also moved to the UK from France. After spending a few hours with friends on that Thursday evening, Amelie took the journey back to her rented room on Gould Road. Amelie had got on the wrong bus and ended up missing her stop, so she decided to walk the rest of the way, around a mile from where she got off. CCTV captured her journey toward Twickenham Green at 9.55pm. Around 15 minutes later, Amelie was found beside the cricket pitch bleeding profusely from a head wound. She was lying face down on the ground when a passerby discovered her and ran for help. Emergency responders quickly rushed Amelie to West Middlesex University Hospital. However, she died from a catastrophic wound to the back of her head. A simple tent perched in the middle of a cricket pitch, roped off and deserted but for a number of police officers searching the area. The gentle surrounds of Twickenham Green now host to a horrific murder. The appearance of that poor young girl living in this country, it's very distressing. Something can happen like that in an open space. It doesn't make sense. I mean, the boat must be start raving mad. Addressing the press... Detective Chief Superintendent Andy Murphy, who headed the Serious Crime Unit, spoke about the attack on Amélie de Lagrange and said, The possibility that the murder may be linked to other incidents in Twickenham has neither been ruled in nor out at this stage, and the investigation is being looked into carefully. All we can say about the the attack weapon and the murder weapon is that it's a heavy, blunt object. That could be anything. Um, It it could be uh, a baseball bat, it could be a length of pipe, it could be a a large, heavy branch. Um, It could be um, a a club hammer type type of uh, object. It's very unlikely to be the traditional... The attack took place less than a mile from where Marsha MacDonald had been killed and detectives quickly tried to track Amelie's missing handbag and mobile phone. A terrifying picture was emerging of a man with a hammer, stalking and attacking young females with blonde hair. With the suspect detained in a psychiatric hospital, the investigators wondered if they had the wrong person, or if there was a copycat attacking women as they walked home alone. Amélie de Lagrange's distraught family travelled from France after being informed of her death. Nicknamed Lillabelle, her parents and sister left flowers and cards that read, Amélie, my angel, why did you leave me? Must I live without you? I keep you in my heart forever. I keep your smile. Her sister wrote that Amelie had found the happiness she had been searching for, but someone had stolen it. Speaking about Amelie's loved ones, Detective Chief Superintendent Murphy said at the time, they are devastated 
Any of us with families can understand that. To see your daughter leave home to go to another country and find she has been murdered, I think we can understand the emotion they are going through. The police would reveal another similar incident had occurred in April of that year, when Adele Harbison was attacked as she made her way home past Twickenham Green. She had been found walking in a haze, with a number of large head wounds that were consistent with the injuries sustained by Marsha McDonnell and Jesse Wilson. Adele required facial reconstructive surgery as a result of the attack, but she had no memory of what happened. She later said, This incident has brought back to me how fortunate I was to have survived. Although I am still suffering as a result of my injuries, I was getting to the stage where I could start to think and talk about everyday activities and not just the assault. This has been and now continues to be a very distressing time for both my family and myself. The police knew that the killer had to be familiar with the area, so they suspected he lived locally. Officers also theorised that the suspect worked in transportation, as many of the attacks occurred near bus stops. Detective Chief Superintendent Murphy tried to ease the community's fears while reminding them to stay vigilant. He said, Be aware of your surroundings and your environment. Be aware of who is around you. Our advice is to avoid dark areas. Avoid open spaces and dimly lit places. Let's not have a city under siege. This kind of attack is very rare. To reassure the public, we will be stepping up police patrols. There will be a highly visible deployment of officers. We are bringing in more CCTV cameras and there will be covert operations too. The murder of Amélie de la Grange affected Marsha MacDonald's parents, who were still reeling from her death a year prior. Uta MacDonald spoke to a correspondent with the Express newspaper and said, They look so alike, both young, blonde and very pretty. They were happy girls who only wanted to get on with their lives. Whoever is doing this has got an idea of what he's doing but he can't be normal, otherwise he wouldn't do it. Maybe he's got a hatred for blonde women. When I first saw the picture of Amelie, I thought, that's Marsha. I feel for the family, for their pain, because I know their lives will never be the same. I just hope they will find the faith and the strength to carry on like we have. Investigators processed the cricket screens on the green to try and find any trace evidence the killer may have left behind. Perhaps he lay in wait for a victim to pass by. Amelie had a Sony Ericsson T300 mobile phone she was using with a UK SIM, and detectives believe recovering the phone was crucial in order for them to find the killer. It last pinged at 10.23pm on the night of the murder, close to Walton-on-Thames, before it was disconnected from the network. 
Some of Amelie's belongings were subsequently recovered from the River Thames in the area where the device had pinged, but her phone was not located. Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton later wrote about the investigation in his book Manhunt. He explained that the distance between the phone's last known location and the area where Amelie was murdered was about six and a half miles, a distance that could not be covered in such a short space of time on foot or by bike, so the suspect had fled in a vehicle. Officers painstakingly trawled through hours of CCTV footage from the area to try and identify a suspicious car or van. Later that month, another woman came forward to say that she too had been attacked by a stranger with a blunt instrument. Dawn Bruton told the Evening Standard that she had been struck in the head nine months prior as she walked towards Hatton Cross tube station. Dawn said, When I heard about Amelie's murder, I was in absolute shock. There are so many similarities between what happened to me. My attacker came from behind, and the last thing I heard was the rustling of leaves before he hit me on the back of the head. I fell down unconscious without putting out my hands and landed on the left side of my face, smashing my bones and teeth. When I think of what happened to Amelie, I'm lucky to be alive. My life was probably saved because I was discovered quite quickly by passers-by who raised the alarm and called an ambulance. A reenactment of Amelie de la Grange's last known movements were televised, and her parents issued a statement afterwards. They said, Her radiance and joy of living, described by her friends, brutally ended at 22 years old by the mad actions of a predator. The news that we have heard has brought us indescribable pain, which has devastated our family. During the emptiness that we feel when thinking of our daughter and sister who was killed in abominable circumstances, we urge everyone in and around the local area to help the police with their inquiries and give evidence. Amelie's boyfriend Oliver also spoke with the press and said that his partner had called him a few hours before she was killed. Amelie had asked him to come and see her, but Oliver told her he was too tired. Speaking with the mail on Sunday, Oliver said, If I had agreed to meet her, she might not have even gone to a wine bar to meet her friends, not have been taking the bus, walking home alone. All our friends say I cannot blame myself, but maybe. It was Oliver that identified Amelie as the victim of the attack. After her handbag had been stolen, Oliver's phone number was found written on a piece of paper in her pocket, and the police called him. Once her body was released to her family... Amélie de Lagrange's funeral took place near her hometown of Onwal in France. In the aftermath of Amélie's murder, 
Marsha McDonald's older sister Natalie spoke to the Express about her grief and the renewed heartbreak the second murder had caused. Natalie had travelled to New York days before Marsha's murder and recalled being told news of the attack by a friend while she was in the city. When she flew home to be by her sister's bedside, Natalie was alarmed to be dropped off at home instead of the hospital. Natalie said, My brother Jack ran to answer when I knocked on the front door. I'm sure he thought it would be Marsha. I walked into the living room. Dad came straight over and gave me a hug. I'm so sorry, Nat, he said. Marsha died at four o'clock this afternoon when you were on the plane. Deep down, I think I already knew. I felt numb. I sat down on the sofa next to Mum and Maya and wept. I could see Dad crumbling before my eyes. Jack was sitting on the floor drawing. Mum and Dad had explained Marsha was dead, but he was too young to understand. Like Amelie de Lagrange's family, Marsha's loved ones had to wait until the police had completed their forensic examination of her remains before they could say their final goodbyes. Natalie explained, Saying goodbye to my sister was the hardest thing I ever had to do. She looked like the same Marsha. There were no visible signs of her injuries. I left her a note, and I placed one of three silver rings Myra and I had bought on one of her fingers. Myra and I had chosen the rings after Marsha's death. We kept one each. It finally hit home she had gone. I began to suffer panic attacks and migraines. The funeral was on March 7th. The procession went past our house and our old school. Rain poured down, but the streets were lined with people. Marsha's death is enough to cope with. I can't imagine how I'll feel if there is ever a trial. Our family still lives in the same house. Even though I have to walk every day past the spot where Marsha was attacked, this is where we grew up, and the house is full of happy memories. Marsha's photographs cover the walls. I kept all her clothes, and sometimes wear them because it makes me feel close to her. Myra and I try to stay positive for Jack's sake. Marsha was his favourite, special sister. Marsha will always be with me, but now a line has been drawn through my life. Everything is before Marsha or after Marsha. And that is the way it will always be. A week later, a Scotland Yard spokesperson said they were formally linking a number of attacks on women in southwest London. The police confirmed that they were attributing the murders of Marsha MacDonald and Amélie de Lagrange to a serial killer. There were at least six attacks carried out by a male the press dubbed the Blonde Ripper due to the killer's perceived hatred of fair-haired women. Once the police announced the direction of their investigation, Marsha McDonald's mother, Uta, spoke to the Evening Standard. She said, 
The pain continues and all we can do is hope and pray this monster is caught. It is the horrible waiting game. He is a coward who waits in bushes for a vulnerable target and attacks from behind. What warning can you give when there's someone like that about? If a cowardly man is determined to attack women, the only way to prevent more attacks is for him to be taken off the streets. We had suspected for so long that the two murders were linked. Geographically, it was obvious. The cowardly brutality made it even clearer. We've spoken to police before about the possible connection. The Evening Standard also reported that salons close to Twickenham Green had several female customers who were dyeing their hair darker out of fear of being attacked. One of the salon employees, Sam Stokoe, remarked, They say I want to be dark because he goes for blondes. I was surprised at first, but then I wouldn't be blonde. It was very worrying. I don't want to walk on my own anymore. We've had about 15 blonde women asking to be dyed dark or red. They're all ages, but mostly mums, and all live quite close to the green. The heightened anxiety felt by women in southwest London was barely pacified by the thousands of rape alarms distributed by officers who had up their presence in the area. In the first week of September, a hammer was found by a member of the public near Bear Road in Hounslow, two miles from Twickenham Green. The discovery was preceded by another attack on a 28-year-old woman who was hit on the head as she walked on Hounslow Road. As officers viewed the CCTV footage from the area around Twickenham Green from the night of Amelie de Lagrange's murder, they noticed a white van had been parked close by before Amelie was attacked. The van was identified as a 1996 to 2000 model Ford Courier. Investigators were able to track the vehicle toward Walton on Thames, bolstering their suspicion that the driver had killed Amelie before disposing of her belongings in the river. The van was distinctive due to a broken headlight and unusual bodywork. So although the officers could identify the van in surveillance footage, they could not track it down as that type of vehicle was driven by tens of thousands of people in London. Tips had been flooding in, but one piece of information stood out among the rest. A woman named Joanna Collins reported to the police that she suspected her ex-partner, Levi Belfield, could be responsible for the attacks. Joanna said that her former partner hated women. When he left their home years prior, among his belongings in the garage, Joanna found a magazine. Flicking through the pages, she noticed that all the women with blonde hair had their faces slashed out. Belfield knew the areas where the attacks took place, and had a history of violence. Most recently, he had attacked a man with a hammer and was on bail for grievous bodily harm. What's more, Levi Belfield owned a white Ford Courier van. Chapter 2 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Levi Belfield was born on May 17, 1968, at West Middlesex Hospital in Isleworth to parents Joseph Rebetz and Jean Belfield, a family with Romany heritage. Belfield lost his father to leukaemia before his teens and later attended Feltham Community College. 
His mother Jean and her other four children lived in West London on a council estate. According to one of his ex-partners, Joanna Collings, Belfield was extraordinarily close to his mother. Far too close, in fact. Jean allegedly shared a bed with her son and continued to wipe his backside after he used the toilet until his early teens. Joanna Collins also voiced her opinion that she believed that women with blonde hair bore the brunt of Belfield's hatred in later life because his mother was a brunette. Within a few years of his father's death, Belfield began his criminal career. He was first apprehended for burglary. By his early 20s, he had racked up almost a dozen further criminal offences, some of which included violence, such as assaulting a police officer. Levi Belfield had already spent a year of his life in prison. Once the investigators learned of Levi Belfield's violent past, they began surveilling him. Officers also discovered that the then 36-year-old had been known to drive a silver Vauxhall Corsa and a white Toyota Privia, a people carrier with blacked-out windows. The Toyota Privia was like the vehicle that had run over Kate Sheedy. Just a month before Kate was almost killed in the hit-and-run, Belfield had been arrested in the Toyota for allegedly kidnapping a man. CCTV footage from a nearby pub captured at the time had not been viewed by the police, but the tapes had been stored. The footage showed a white Toyota Privia driving behind the bus before overtaking it. Two minutes later, the car turned and travelled back along the road, away from the location where Kate Sheedy had been run over. Devastatingly, if the footage had been viewed and the car linked to Belfield, Amélie Delagrange may not have been attacked and killed a few months later. Belfield's other vehicle connected him to another killing too. After reviewing CCTV footage captured by a bus at the time of Marsha McDonald's murder, investigators noticed a silver Vauxhall Corsa driving toward the bus Marsha boarded before it pulled in and appeared to stop after Marsha got off. With a primary suspect and several reports from people who had witnessed Levi Belfield's violent behaviour, the decision was made to arrest him. In the early hours of November 22, 2004, officers from the investigating team executed simultaneous search and arrest warrants at properties Belfield was known to frequent. Because he had been under surveillance, they knew he had spent the night at his partner's home on a cul-de-sac, Little Benty in West Drayton. However, after entering the property and searching for Belfield, Officers could not find him. Hours passed, and with the possibility that the suspect knew he was a wanted man, the investigators worried about what Belfield might do. Realising the magnitude of what was happening, 
His partner Emma Mills informed the officers that Belfield was hiding in the loft. A detective sergeant carefully made his way through the hatch and began looking around. Beneath the insulation, the suspect was lying in silence, stark naked. After being allowed to get dressed, Levi Belfield was taken to Heathrow Police Station for questioning. Forensic police search for clues in the hunt for the killer of 22-year-old language student Amélie Delagrange. And today, an arrest after another woman came forward to say she survived a similar attack two years ago. In relation to the murder of Amélie, we, we want to recover a white Ford Courier vehicle. We believe that vehicle was used by the suspect uh, on the 19th of August. With Levi Belfield in custody, his partner Emma Mills felt safe enough to disclose the violence she had been subjected to for almost a decade. Emma was just 18 when she first met Belfield, who was working as a bouncer at a nightclub in Cobham. He was ten years older than her, but Belfield quickly won Emma over with romantic gestures like flowers, handwritten notes and song dedications at karaoke nights. Emma moved in with Belfield and his uncle after just six months of meeting one another. Within weeks, his charming facade changed. Belfield began to be his true self. Over the following nine years, Emma had given birth to three of Belfield's eleven children. During that time, he subjected her to brutal assaults, rapes and psychological abuse. Emma later spoke with a reporter for the Mail on Sunday about what happened. Describing the first time Belfield hit her after she had asked his uncle Charlie for help with something, Without clearing it with Belfield first, Emma said, I was driving him home from the pub and he started hitting me on the side of my face by my left eye. Then the car ran out of petrol and we walked the rest of the way home. It was about two miles with him punching and kicking me the whole way. When we got home, I went upstairs. I remember someone trying to pull my trousers down. And then the next thing I knew, Charlie was throwing a bucket of water over me. Levi called his ex-girlfriend Joe and told her to take me to the hospital. He told me not to give my real name, and I told them I'd been beaten up by a gang of girls. Afterwards he cried and said he loved me. He was so sorry that I forgave him. The following month, Belfield raped his partner under Walton Bridge. Emma would be subjected to numerous sexual attacks throughout the course of their relationship. Belfield isolated her from her friends and family and controlled every aspect of her life. Emma told the reporter for the Mail on Sunday, He never hit me again after that first time. But sometimes while he was raping me, he would slap me, and he'd always pull my hair and call me a slag and a bitch. 
Once he raped me outside and then locked me out for about half an hour afterwards with no clothes on. Another time it was on the stairs and he got a Stanley knife and traced it along my back. Afterwards I'd try and forget it. It was too scary to think about the reality and how wrong it was. It always happened after an argument. It was always, think you're clever now, do you? By the end it was probably happening once every couple of weeks, and he stopped saying sorry the next morning. After a prolonged sexual assault in late 2001, Emma left with the children and went to a refuge. However, Belfield convinced her to give him another chance, and they moved into a flat in Walton-on-Thames. Emma said, I believe that he changed, and he was true to his word. He never touched me again. Levi Belfield's behaviour toward his long-term partner and mother to some of his children did change, and this coincided with the beginning of a number of attacks on young girls and women across London. While preparations were being made for identification parades and interviews at Heathrow Police Station, Levi Belfield attempted to take his own life using the elastic from his tracksuit bottoms as a ligature and also by trying to drown himself in a cell toilet. The attempts were unsuccessful, as were the investigators' efforts to secure a confession from the suspected killer. Belfield was arrested for the rape and assault of Emma Mills, and remanded into custody while the police built a case against him for a number of violent attacks and the murder of Amélie Delagrange. Furthermore, several previously unreported assaults would be connected to Levi Belfield following his arrest. On October 15, 2001, 17-year-old Anna Maria Rennie was waiting at a bus stop in Twickenham when she saw a dark-coloured vehicle pull up beside her. It was almost midnight. A man got out of the car and walked toward her. He tried to engage her in conversation and offered her a lift. When Anna Maria declined, the man grabbed her, pinning her arms to her side and used her other hand to cover her mouth muffling her screams. As he began to carry her toward the car, Anna Maria struggled free from his grasp, hearing him shout the word whore as she fled. Anna Maria Rennie would go on to identify Levi Belfield as her attacker from a video lineup. In December 2003, 34-year-old Irma Dragoshi was standing at a bus stop in Longford, West Drayton, while she spoke with her husband Astrid on the phone. Astrid heard his wife scream before the line went dead, and when he called back, a woman who was not his wife answered the phone. She had been told Irma had been hit in the back of the head with something and was in a lot of pain. 
After she was taken to the emergency room, the attending doctor noted that Irma's injuries were consistent with a blow to the head from a blunt object. Irma suffered from amnesia following the assault and could not remember what happened. When confronted with the allegation of his involvement, Levi Belfield denied he had attacked Irma Dragoshi. However, he did admit that he had been at the scene, claiming it was his work colleague who had carried out the assault. Belfield said that it was Sunil Guru who attempted to steal the woman's purse. When questioned, Guru contradicted Belfield's account and told the police that he saw Belfield leave the car and throw a woman to the ground at the bus stop. Levi Belfield was brought to court today to hear the details of the string of violent crimes he's alleged to have committed. This was a very brief court appearance here at Bow Street Magistrates Court. Levi Belfield entered the packed courtroom wearing a dark blue sports top and denim jeans. Uh, Belfield spoke only to confirm his name. After all the charges had been read out, he briefly clapped his hands as if in mock applause. He was remanded in custody and he will appear next at, uh, at the Old Bailey on March the 31st. In March 2006, Levi Belfield was charged with the murder of Amélie de la Grange, the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy, the attempted murder of Irma Dragoshi, and the kidnap and false imprisonment of Anna Maria Rennie. Two months later, he was charged with the murder of Marsha MacDonald. Belfield subsequently appeared in court via video link from Woodhill Prison in Milton Keynes. A provisional trial date was set for April the following year. However, on the day the trial was due to begin, it was announced there would be a postponement until October. DCI Colin Sutton said at the time, the case has been adjourned at the defence's request to give them more time to gather evidence. The trial began on October 12, 2007 at the Old Bailey. Levi Belfield denied two charges of murder, two charges of attempted murder and charges of kidnap and inflicting grievous bodily harm with intent. Prosecutor Brian Altman QC opened the case for the Crown by telling the jury, between October 2001 and August 2004, five women, four of them young women aged between 17 and 22, were violently attacked. Two of these young women were brutally murdered by being battered about the head with a blunt instrument. One young woman survived a horrific attack on her when she was driven at and run over. Another woman suffered a nasty injury when she was struck on the head. Another woman survived the attack without injury. There are such similarities between the offences that the chances of them being committed by two or more men working independently can safely and sensibly be excluded, such that all the offences were the work of one man, and that man was Levi Belfield. The Crown's case was made up of a combination of direct and compelling circumstantial evidence. 
It highlighted Belfield's links to the area, as he had worked as a bouncer at local pubs and clubs. According to the prosecutor, the evidence would directly link Belfield to the crimes he was accused of. Speaking about the attack on Irma Dragoshi in 2003, the prosecutor said that Belfield and his associate had been driving in the area when Belfield pulled over, switching off the lights and engine off the car. He turned to Sunil Guru and said, Watch this. Brian Altman QC told the jury, Guru saw Belfield jog over to a woman standing at a bus stop and pull up the hood of his hooded top. Belfield jogged up to this woman and grabbed her shoulder. Belfield span her round and as Guru saw, it smashed her to the floor. Belfield then ran back to the car and drove off laughing. There was an element of bravado showing off to Guru demonstrating his capacity for motiveless and wanton violence to a woman. Madragoshi would testify at the trial. She tearfully recalled someone coming up behind her and trying to take a mobile phone from her hand before she was struck on the head. The next thing she knew, she was in hospital. Irma had moved back to Kosovo since the attack, but said that the effects still lingered. She could feel the lump on her head where she had been hit. Irma testified, I had pain at the front of my head and I could not open my eyes. I had very painful headaches and I still get these headaches now. After hearing about the attacks on Irma Dragoshi and Anna Maria Rennie, the court was told how Belfield had stalked his victims as they got off buses and began to make their way home. The prosecutor said, The buses were well illuminated to allow passengers to see, but the light served a far more sinister purpose. It allowed the attacker to see inside. These were not chance victims, but targeted victims of a predatory man who stalked bus stops and routes in vehicles looking for young women to attack. After viewing footage captured by the bus Marsha McDonnell was travelling on, the jury were told that Levi Belfield owned a silver Vauxhall Corsa, the same car that was seen driving by as Marsha disembarked at the bus stop. The images were of poor quality, so it was impossible to definitively identify the license plate, but it was definitely the same make and model of vehicle. The jury were told that Belfield had sold the car a week after the attack and arranged for his girlfriend and children to go on holiday to Tenerife soon after. The prosecutor called these measures acts of desperation following the murder. Brian Altman QC explained that a pathologist had concluded Marsha McDonald had sustained three heavy blows, which caused skull fractures and a severe brain injury. The weapon used was possibly a lump hammer. The prosecutor said, Marsha had been unable to use her hands and arms to protect herself. A rapid attack was likely. Marsha McDonald's neighbours testified that they had found her lying on the pavement outside their home 
after hearing what sounded like a car door closing 20 minutes earlier. When he heard a second sound like someone moaning, David Fuller pulled back his bedroom curtains and saw blood pooling on the pavement. While David spoke to the emergency services, his wife Bernadette went to see what he was looking at. She said, I got out of bed and looked out of the window. Initially, I could not see anything. David was pointing to a pool of blood by the left-hand pillar of the garden wall. I could see a pool of liquid running down the pavement. When I looked again, a hand stretched out from the pool, so I thought there was someone, not just the blood. After running outside and finding Marsha face down on the path, Bernadette Fuller told the court. She stretched out her arm in front of her, and then she clawed her arm backwards. I pulled the hood back to try and see what was happening. It was quite difficult to see. She was obviously bleeding a lot. It was difficult to see where it was coming from. Her hair was quite matted. Initially, she made a low moaning sound, but that stopped quite soon. I talked to her the whole time. A written statement by a first responder who had arrived at the scene was read to the court by the prosecutor. We saw a person lying face down on the pavement with a white duvet covering her. A white female was crouched next to her. She was lying in a pool of blood on the pavement with her hands underneath her. I couldn't establish where the blood was coming from. She was breathing, and she had a pulse, and I was shouting at her, but there was no response. We sat her up, but she was rigid, which told me she had a serious head injury, but neither my colleague or myself could determine the exact location of the blood loss. Marsha McDonnell was rushed to Kingston Hospital, but she did not regain consciousness and died days later. The jury was shown the footage from the night Kate Sheedy was the victim of a hit and run. This footage had gone unwatched until after Amélie de Lagrange was killed months later. From Hanslow CID, Detective Sergeant Philip Royan explained at the trial that there were six videos in total. Still only three of the tapes had been viewed due to a mix-up with the exact time of the incident. Once again, the connection was made between the vehicle seen driving in the area. The same vehicle Kate Sheedy reported had knocked her down and reversed over her, a car used by Levi Belfield. Just as he had with the other women, Belfield stalked his victim from a bus stop, but because Kate had instinctively crossed the road to avoid the suspicious car, Belfield did not get a chance to strike her with a weapon. Brian Altman QC told the jury, It is true there is no blunt instrument used to strike Kate Sheedy over the head, but if the prosecution is right, he used a different blunt instrument, that of a car. This dreadful crime was the work of no other man than Levi Belfield. When Belfield had been questioned about the hit and run, 
He had described it as despicable. Belfield said he was showing remorse, but later recanted this statement and said that he did not understand the meaning of the word. What he meant to say was that he was disgusted at being accused of the crime. Kate Sheedy's mother, Eileen, had written a statement that was read to the jury, in which she described Kate calling her to tell her she'd been run over and then finding her daughter lying on the pavement. Eileen recalled that Kate had said someone had run her over on purpose. Detective Constable Michael Jones had spoken to Kate at the hospital a few hours after the incident. DC Jones testified that Kate was clearly in pain, but she was able to tell the police what had happened, even with an oxygen mask over her mouth. She had told the officer, Please get the bastard. Kate Sheedy also addressed the courtroom, bravely recalling the horrific details of the night she was almost killed. She was cross-examined by Belfield's defence barrister William Boyce QC about her recollections and statements she had given to the police, but Kate did not falter in her testimony. The jury was shown footage from the time of Amélie de Lagrange's murder on Twickenham Green during August 2004. They saw the videos of a white van driving in the area before parking in a bus lane. They were told Levi Belfield owned a white Ford Courier, precisely like the one captured in the footage. Witness testimony would show that on the same day Amélie was killed, Belfield had turned up at a colleague's home and offered to sell him the van for scrap. The data from Amelie's mobile phone correlated with the journey the van was seen taking, and Belfield's phone data placed him in the area of the murder at the same time the vehicle was captured on CCTV. Newspapers containing articles about the murder were also found in Belfield's home. The jury were told about Belfield's behaviour in the days following Amelie's murder. He had called his friend Richard Hughes on August 25th, asking that he take him to the hospital because Belfield had taken an overdose of diazepam. Hughes asked Belfield what was wrong, and Belfield allegedly replied through tears, You don't know what I've done. Belfield was admitted to Hillingdon Hospital where he was treated for suicidal ideation, which Belfield claimed had plagued him for at least six months. Emma Mills, Belfield's ex-partner of almost a decade, also testified that he told her he was feeling suicidal in the days after August 19, 2004. She said that he was crying heavily when he called her late at night, Belfield explained that he was going to be going to prison. He asked her to tell their children that he loved them. Emma believed Belfield was referring to an assault charge he was on bail for at the time. In the third month of the trial, Levi Belfield took the stand to testify in his own defence. 
He answered his barrister's questions and spoke about his criminal history. He told the jury that each time he had previously made an appearance in court, he had pleaded guilty. Belfield claimed to have an alibi for almost all of the attacks he was accused of. On the night Anna Maria Rennie was almost abducted, he said he was, quote, having a Chinese. When Marsha MacDonald was attacked, he claimed to be watching a Michael Jackson documentary with his partner. He said that on the day of Amelie de Lagrange's murder, he had been shopping with his children before going to a pub and then getting a taxi back to Emma Mills' home. Belfield was asked why he had not agreed to stand in a lineup when Anna Maria Rennie was to identify her attacker. He replied in a voice reporters described as being slightly high-pitched. With all that has been going on with me regarding the allegations, it just knocked me sideways. I couldn't believe it. They'd put me on an ID parade for someone who was six feet three inches and blonde hair. I was upset, to be honest. Very upset. And angry. I was gutted. Like now, really. Levi Belfield did, however, admit on the stand that he had been present when Irma Dragoshi was attacked. Still, he insisted it was not him who hit her. He only witnessed Sunil Guru carrying out the attack. Belfield told the court, Part of me was in shock. I did not know whether he knew her or if it was ongoing. I did not want to get involved. He was not punching her. If he was attacking her, I would have got out, of course. Levi Belfield alleged that Guru told him the woman had stolen his girlfriend's mobile phone and claimed that if the police had spoken to him at the time, he would have made a full statement against Guru. When he was cross-examined by the Crown Prosecutor Brian Altman QC, Levi Belfield denied he had ever met Amélie de la Grange. The prosecutor countered that Belfield had been driving in the van he used for his wheel-clamping business when he saw Amélie walking alone. He then slowed down and tried to engage with her after parking by Twickenham Green. Brian Altman QC said, You were lying in wait just as you had for Kate Sheedy a couple of months before. You got out of your van, tooled up with your hammer or some such weapon, and you tried it on. She would not engage you, though. Amelie rejected you, and she paid a price. As the trial drew to an end and the jury heard closing remarks... Levi Belfield's defence counsel, William Boyce QC, told the jury, A lot of this desperate squeeze is self-fulfilling. The police investigators have chosen the offences and chosen what to put in their theory. It is cutting and pasting with no regard for consistency and no regard for accuracy, trying to fit the squeeze. The barrister contended that Anna Maria Rennie was an unreliable witness. Boy said that she may have been drunk and had smoked cannabis that night, calling her half-baked. 
He also discredited Kate Sheedy's account by insinuating she had been drunk when she was run over and had not been wearing her glasses. William Boyce QC referred to other unsolved cases where women had been attacked, and one of the victims had described the offender as looking like, quote, Trevor from EastEnders, but with a fat chin. The defence barrister said, Even with a fat chin, Mr. Belfield looks like Trevor in his wildest dreams. The Crown Prosecutor summed up the case by saying the attacks were carried out by one man, repeating the same behaviour each time. Brian Altman QC reminded the jury that Belfield's vehicles were linked to each crime and asked the jurors, Is that just plain bad luck, coincidence, chance, or is it evidence that the same man is committing similar crimes? There were other similarities. The women were described as young, attractive, fair-haired and alone near a bus stop. Altman said, they were all of a type. After all the evidence was presented, in her summing up, Mrs Justice Rafferty provided some guidance to the jurors, saying... The Crown says that when you look at the similarities between them, you can see this is the work of one man. The similarities include a lone young female, the hours of darkness, a bus stop or bus, and an area of West London, with which Levi Belfield was familiar. If you are sure the evidence of similarity shows this is the work of one man, you may use the evidence on any count to support the case against Levi Belfield on the others. You are not required to consider each case in isolation. If you are not sure it is the work of the same man, first isolate each offence and then ask yourselves if Belfield committed it. The jury of seven women and five men were sent out to deliberate on the case and were told to look at each charge individually. After two days, the jury were instructed they could return majority verdicts. On February 25th, following over a week of deliberations, they returned to the courtroom. Jurors could not reach verdicts over the charges of the attempted murder of Irma Dragoshi and the attempted kidnap and false imprisonment of Anna Maria Rennie. However, Levi Belfield was found guilty of murdering Amelie de la Grange and Marsha MacDonald and guilty of the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. Following the verdicts, a statement provided by Amélie de Lagrange's parents was read to the court by a police liaison officer. We would like to thank the jury for not disregarding the overwhelming evidence surrounding these serious charges against Belfield, who has now been found guilty of the murder of our beloved daughter.
Marsha MacDonald's uncle Shane also read a statement to the court, saying, Five years have passed since the night our beloved Marsha was so cruelly taken from our world. A girl with only love in her heart, cruelly slain by a man with only hate in his. The pain and hurt we carry will always be there, and it is a sentence with no remission. The man responsible for these barbaric crimes has finally been proved to be guilty. For five months we have had to endure him hiding behind a cowardly charade of innocence put forward by his defence team. We at last get to see Levi Belfield for what he truly is. Marsha, we miss you. Our world is now incomplete, like a rainbow missing a colour. We thank you for your joy you brought to us in your short life. The goodness, sense of fun, spirit and passion for life remains with us. Kate Sheedy also spoke to the media outside the courtroom. I have waited for nearly four years for this day and it is hard to express how much it means to me that justice has been done. On the day I was attacked, I was celebrating about moving on to a new and exciting time in my life. All that hope and excitement was taken from me and I thought my life had changed forever. Of course, I will never be able to forget what happened to me. The scars on my body and the memories I I have are something I will never be rid of, but hopefully I can move on. Meeting Amelie's parents and Marsha's family has been a painful reminder of what could have been and brings a deep sadness for those who were not as lucky as I was. I hope that this verdict helps bring some comfort to all those families that have been affected by the despicable actions of just one man. Levi Belfield did not attend the sentencing hearing the following day. According to his barrister, it was due to the, quote, extraordinary explosion of bad publicity and the welter of accusations of other crimes by him. Belfield's behaviour throughout the trial was deemed abhorrent, as he was said to have gestured, winked and mouthed obscenities at the victims' families. Regardless of his absence, Mrs Justice Rafferty directly addressed Belfield. She said, You have reduced three families to unimagined grief. The statements I have read and the words the court heard this morning were hard for many a professional to bear. Marsha MacDonald was yards away from her home in a quiet residential area of Hampton. Age 19, she was beaten to the head and left to die on the pavement. Kate Sheedy lives due to her own courage and resource. The girl who you left lying on the road after you had driven and reversed over her. She said her goodbyes to her parents as she waited to die. Amelie Delagrange came to the UK expecting to be safe. She was beaten to the head and left to die on Twickenham Green during an August night. Three young women upon whom you prayed in the dark as they stood or walked near to or from buses. What dreadful feelings went through your head as you attacked and in two cases, snubbed out a young life, is beyond understanding. Mrs Justice Rafferty praised DCI Colin Sutton and his team for their work on the case. 
she told him. The road had sometimes been rocky, but this case had depended on hours and hours of painstaking work, had relied on dedication and patience, and I commend you and your team. There were mistakes made during the investigation that potentially allowed Levi Belfield to go undetected following the attack on Kate Sheedy. Scotland Yard and the Metropolitan Police issued a statement announcing that two senior officers had been disciplined for their handling of the investigation, and two officers had been given a verbal warning. Kate Sheedy had filed a formal complaint in February 2005, and in response, the Met said, We recognise mistakes were made in the original investigation into the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy, and measures to prevent a repetition have since been implemented at Hounslow. Even more concerning was the possibility that Levi Belfield could have been caught in 2002, when a 13-year-old girl vanished right outside his doorstep. This is the end of episode one. To hear the concluding instalment of the life and crimes of Levi Belfield, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.